Uh, Today we're beginning our Christmas series, and I'm excited that we got to sing the song, uh, Oh Holy Night. It's one of my favorite uh, Christmas carols, and and the thing that I love about it is that particular line that says, A Thrill of Hope. And so we've decided to key in on that this Christmas season and explore the hope that we have in Christ, this good thing that we see coming in Christmas, and really try to uncover what that is. I'm going to ask if we could get the house lights up. Are they working? So the guys can uh, read their Bibles as we uh, jump into this. Uh, But I want you to hear the way the writer of the carol describes the story of Christmas. He says that the world long lay in sin. And error. Pining. Just waiting there. Just for years and years and years. The world just kind of set in the desperation and darkness of sin. And then, then something happened. In this moment of kind of earth-shaking joy, He appears. And the writer of the song says, The soul felt its worth. That, that we knew that God loved us when we saw His coming. And he says, Then this thrill of hope, because we knew something good was on the horizon. This thrill of hope as this weary tired world rejoiced because if you could just look far enough beyond the horizon you would see a new day is dawning what he calls a new and glorious morn something that God was doing in our world that that broke through the darkness and, and that gave us great cause for celebration even though it hadn't been fully cooked up yet even though not everything was coming to bear at that moment that at his coming That we could see a new day appearing. A day in which God dwelled with men. That's the story of Christmas. What the theologians call the incarnation. Which means God in flesh. That God chose to live with us. The prophet Isaiah foretold the coming of the Christmas story in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. The promise to Israel was this. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. That there would be this young woman, this virgin, and she would have a child. And this child would would be God in in our presence in, in human form. And so at Christmas time, we celebrate the hope that God is with us. That he's he's here. And that he's come to us. So many times as we go through difficulties in life, we feel alone and we feel detached and we feel somehow as if no one else understands what we go through. And the Christmas story is that that's not true and God is with us. In in all of the wildness of the human experience, the suffering that we endure, the joys, the pains, everything in between God is present. He is with us. When we say that God is with us and that Jesus is God in in human form, it's important to understand exactly what we mean. And so I want to begin with maybe a brief theology lesson about the incarnation. And and my uh, Bible nerdness is going to come out for a minute. And then we're going to back out of that and talk practically about how this should shape the way we view life. But I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1 with me. 
In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes who Jesus is. When we celebrate the birth of this baby, it's not just some symbolism that God is with us. It's more than just God saying, oh, oh, look, here's a baby in a manger scene. Isn't that cute? Won't that make a nice card to give to people? That, that's not what God's doing. There's something beautiful and significant taking place. And in Colossians chapter 1, and then later in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us what is going on. And in verse 15, he says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When you think about this. The Apostle Paul says that, that Jesus is, is the fullness of God in human form. That, that he's not God light or, or, or diet God. But that he's God in, in human form. That the, the eternal son of God took on flesh. The one who created all things. The, the one who, who cast the stars into the sky. The, the one who, who, who brought the mountains forth. The one who caused the springs of the deep to come up and give us oceans and rivers and lakes. That that God had taken on the form of an infant. The God who had created all nations and peoples and kingdoms. The God who had established the reign of every king and ruler who had ever existed. Was born of a woman in human form. And his name was Jesus. And in him, the Bible says, the fullness of deity dwells. If you move over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him. And I want to talk about that for a moment because it's important that we understand who Jesus is and what we mean when we say that Christ is God incarnate or, or God with us. We mean two things. One, that He is fully God. He, he's not some God. He's not like God. He is fully God. And second, that, that He is fully man. Jesus wasn't a hologram. He wasn't something that looked like a man. He was a man. Full humanity. And, and that Jesus was both at the same time fully God and fully human. It's what the old theologians called the hypostatic union. You, you take that home. If you needed a Greek word to feel like you got your money's worth, consider yourself served. Um, it comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which means substance. And, and the argument was, was this, because people were debating, is, is Jesus really a man or did he just look like a man? Or, or is he really God or is he just Kind of God. And, and so as people begin to say, what does the Bible say? Here's what they came to. Jesus is obviously God. First, he proclaims himself to be God. He says, I am. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus exercises authority over sickness and death and over spiritual powers. He exercises authority over the natural world and wind and waves. 
He demonstrates the authority that only God has. And, and one of the most amazing moments in his ministry, there is someone who is there before him sick in need of being healed. And Jesus kneels down to them and says, your sins are forgiven. To which the religious leaders looking on say, time out, only God can forgive sins. And, and Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't address anything. He's, you know, you're right. But which is harder to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. And then he tells the man, get up and walk. Jesus affirmed what they said, only God can forgive sins. And yet, God was here in human form. Jesus' full godness on display, as Athanasius said, true light from true light. God with us. In addition to that, the Bible is plainly clear that Jesus is a man. He was born as an infant. Born of a woman in a cattle stall in a very unceremonious way, just a baby. And Luke chapter 2 says that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor. So in the normal way that, that people grow up, Jesus grew up. He ate when he was hungry. He slept when he was tired. He wept when he was grieved. He prayed when he needed his father. He was a man. And the most obvious evidence of his humanity is that is that at one point he will be beaten and bleed and he will be nailed to a cross and he will die. Because that's what happens to men. We die. But Jesus divinity, the fact that he's God in human form is evidenced and, and, and vindicated when he's raised from the dead. So the story of Christmas isn't the story of a cute manger scene. It's the story of the God of eternity taking on flesh and coming to us in human form, fully God and fully man, this union of two natures. And he does it in such a surprising way. I want you to think bigger than the Christmas story, the story of God and humanity. The Bible says that God created the world perfectly. In immense beauty. And he, he created a man and a woman. And he placed them at the center of the garden. With this task. That they should fill and subdue the earth. As his representatives. And yet. They as us doubted God's goodness. The only restriction God had placed. Was that there was a tree in the center of the garden. That contained the knowledge of both good and evil. And God had said don't eat of that tree. But he gave them the choice to do it. And they did. And they fell and they began to hide themselves. They realized that they were naked and they made coverings and they ran from God. And God comes to them. And here's the beautiful thing I want you to see about God. Is that sin had entered into the picture as they disobeyed and disbelieved God and His Word. And yet, God comes to them. He doesn't run from them. He doesn't destroy them from afar. He comes to them, And the first question God asks of humanity is not, why did you do that? But where are you? God is looking for them. God is coming to them. Though sin has separated their relationship to Him and the intimacy isn't there. In Genesis 3.8 it says that they heard the sound of God walking in the cool of the garden. Which tells me that they knew what it was like to walk with Him face to face. But sin had separated them. But even in the midst of that separation, God is a God who seeks the lost sinner. He comes to them. 
Now, for a period of time, they, you don't see direct interaction with God in the story of the Bible. What you'll find between the fall and Moses is that primarily God mediates his messages to humanity through an angel. So if he has something to say, an angel comes and delivers the message. One of the things you should learn about angels in the Bible is almost universally, if someone sees an angel, they fall on the ground in fear. And the first words of most interaction with an angel are, fear not. So when you see the little dolls at the Hallmark store, those are not what angels look like. And the reason I'm certain of that is no one ever saw a chubby baby with wings and became afraid. God communicates the message through angels. The more accurate biblical depiction of angels is that they are warriors and messengers for God. Until there's a day that God speaks directly to a man named Moses. And the message he gives Moses, think about this. The first message given to the man who wrote the first five books of the Bible, his first interaction with the God of creation is God telling him this, I have seen the suffering of my people and it is my desire with my mighty hand to save them. And so for a season, as they're going through the wilderness together, as God's delivered them from slavery in Egypt, they're led and God is present with them. And so you see the presence of God at night in a pillar of fire. And in the day is a pillar of cloud, but the people know they have a physical, visible idea that God is present with them. When they build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where God was to dwell and they were to worship, and then later a formal house in the temple, the presence of God's glory dwells there. But, but not in this approachable way, because if you come close and you're not the priest and you haven't been sanctified or consecrated, you, you might die. But God's present with the people. Ezekiel 10 tells the sad story of the people turning from God and His glory leaving the temple. I want you to think about this. The people of Israel for over 400 years go through this season with no visible representation of God's presence. They had felt God with them before, and now He was gone. Some people think about the Jewish culture that Jesus lived in and the way they were, had become so religiously devoted as this strange belief that if we just did it right enough, long enough, He'd come back. Well, the Bible says He was going to come. But not in the way that they thought. And so in the story of God's movement and pursuit of humanity, it comes to this climactic moment where, where not fireworks don't go off, angels flood the sky. And in John 1, he says it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made, and in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And in verse 14 continues the story and said, The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And when John tells the story, he uses this interesting word when he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt with us. Because, because of the Israelite people being spread out across the nations, one of the things they had done is they had developed an Old Testament version in Greek. And, and the word that John uses here is the same word that the people of Israel 
in their Greek Old Testaments would have used to describe the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And what John literally says is that God became flesh and he, he, he pitched his tent with us again. He, he decided to take up residence among the people. He tabernacled with us. God in human form. And he points back to the imagery of the Exodus where just as God had led the people out of slavery in Egypt and guided and delivered them by his mighty hand that he would again lead his people out of slavery and darkness and sin. And where he had led them out from the slavery of the Egyptians with a mighty outstretched arm, he would outstretch his arm to a cross and he would deliver his people again. Not from the slavery of a nation, but from the slavery of their own sin. That God was going to do this. He was with us. He was with us in the same way He had been with them in the wilderness. The same way He had delivered them from Egypt. And the beautiful thing about this story to me is that you see us constantly turning from God and rebelling and moving away and God continuing not to judge but to press into us in increasingly more intimate ways. Restoring what had been lost in the garden. God is present. The beautiful thing about Christmas is that's not the end of the story. And Jesus walked this earth and He died for our sins and He ascended to heaven. But He said, when I go to heaven, I'm going to send My Spirit to you. And it's actually for your good that I go and that He come. Because Jesus, while on earth, was limited by time and space. He could be in one place at one time. And the Spirit of God is not next to us on occasion. But if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus, He abides within us all the time. He says, but even that's just a down payment on a day that's coming. And when you read the story of the end in Revelation 21, you get this phrase repeated several times that the dwelling place of God will be with men and he will be with us and be our God and we will be with him and be his people. So the story of Christmas is a climactic moment in the midst of the story of God's un. Un-understandable, understandable, just inconceivable desire to be with us. Though we turn and though we run, He presses in. And the question is not, what did you do? It's where are you? Of a God who seeks the lost and saves the sinner. The amazing thing to me is the manner in which Jesus came. He comes in humility. The King of kings, who is worthy of all praise and honor, who established every reign that had ever existed, comes to human form. And He comes in the form of a lowly baby. He isn't born into a prominent and wealthy family. His mother and father are working class poor people. He wasn't born in the great halls of a palace with guards looking on and choirs singing His praises. He was born in the backwoods of a district in the Roman Empire, in a cave In a cattle stall. His mother wasn't attended by the greatest midwives and medical facilities available. She was present in the midst of animals. Jesus didn't come and and have ambassadors go from the palace to all the mighty nations and rulers to proclaim the birth of the new king. He's born and the the angels sing to shepherds. Nobody's, anybody's. It's in the backwoods of the empire in a tumble-down stable outside of a small town with little significance in its day. The Son of God comes. 
in poverty, in weakness, and humility. He's born. And this isn't just a, a, a sweet story. This exemplifies the nature of Christ and how He comes to us. If you look at Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul describes the humility of Christ and says this is the way you should live. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. The King of Kings comes to us in humility. Uh, with, with some of the doctrine out of the way, can we talk about just what this means? I want you to understand what this means when we say that God is with us. Is The first thing is that Jesus has come to save us. This idea of the incarnation addresses our absolute need for a Savior and God's absolute justice. You see, in our sin, we have, we have violated the commands of a righteous and holy God. And we have, we have committed cosmic treason against an infinitely holy God. And because of that, the penalty for our sin is infinite. You see, you and I could never pay the penalty for our sin in such a way that it's satisfactory before God. We, we're, we're in too deep. Additionally to that, only man deserves to pay this because this was the sin of men and women. And so God, in this amazing solution to the problem of our sin, since God in human form, the very Son of God takes on flesh so that He can stand on the, in the cross in our place, dying for our sin, as God with infinite resources to deliver us, and as man so that man is punished as he deserves. God with us is absolutely essential for God to save us. Athanasius said it this way, God being just, he must require payment for sin, but man being limited, he cannot retire an infinite debt. Man must pay the sin because he has incurred the debt, but he cannot pay it. God came in human form, being God that he could pay what only God could pay but being man that he could pay what only man should pay. The incarnation, God in human form, is absolutely pivotal to Jesus' work of salvation for us. The second and more regularly something we should celebrate is that, is that God knows us. God being with us is an indication that Jesus, he, he knows us. He understands our experience. He understands our weakness. He knows what humanity is like. He understands our frailty. Not from a scientific way that that God just knows everything, but from an experiential way that He's walked in our shoes. In in Hebrews chapter 4, it describes Jesus as this high priest who makes offering for us. And it says this, it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, why don't you just pause on that for a moment. He says, look, Jesus knows what we go through. He's just like us. He's been tempted, yet without sin. But He knows what you endure. And because of that, the response is, 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. See, the the biblical truth is Jesus knows your experience. He, He knows your struggles, your weaknesses, and your temptations. And the response to that is in our moment of need, we can run to Him. Because He's not distant from us. It's not that He won't understand. You and I both know that one of the one of the hardest things when you go through something difficult in life is feeling that no one else knows what you go through and being able to have someone else in your presence who understands it is tremendous. Being able to walk with someone who's been through it and and come out the other side or, or even just going through it right now with you. But but to have that kind of understanding and to be able to sit in the presence of someone else who who gets what you're experiencing. The Bible says we have that with Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to have his family not understand him. He knows what it's like for his friends to turn on him. He knows what it's like to endure agony unjustly. Jesus understands. And so we can go to him. Because he's walked in this life with us. His understanding of our experience is not distant and and, and theoretical. It's personal. Based on his experience. Because of that. We should run to Him. Which usually when we need Him the most is the last thing we think to do. Our gut instinct most of the time when we're struggling with sin or doubt or just the circumstances of life is to run from Him. And what Jesus has proven in coming in human form is that He understands and we can go to Him. He's sympathetic. So let us draw near to Him that we might receive mercy in our hour of need. So Jesus saves us. Second, Jesus knows us. And third, Jesus is for us. Jesus is with us because he is for us. In John chapter 3, the Bible says that, that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but rather through him to save it. That the presence of Christ with us is an indication of God's kindness towards us. Particularly when you think of the manner that He came in humility to serve sinful men and women. We get this resounding truth that God is on our side. That if we'll turn to Him, if we'll trust Him, that God is good and faithful. That He has come to do us good and to save us. That Jesus has come to rescue and redeem us. God is with us to save us. He knows us and He's for us. We need to turn to Galatians chapter 4. It's such a rich text talking about God's work for us and His love for us in Jesus. And as the Apostle Paul reflects on ultimately what is the Christmas story... He instructs us on how we ought to live. In verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come. Think about that at just the right moment. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has spent sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I mean, think about this. 
at just the right moment in history. Jesus came into the world. That God had crafted the whole story. And so as, as Caesar declares that a census must be taken so that all the world should be taxed and, and Jesus and or, uh, Mary and Joseph have to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that, that behind all of that, God is at work. And at just the right moment, He sent His Son into the world, born of a woman, to free those of us who are under the curse of the law because we couldn't live up to God's righteous demands to set us free. And He's done that for us. And because He's done that for us, if you've trusted Jesus, the very Spirit of God comes to you and enables you to cry out to God as Abba, Father, with affection and tenderness and love that no longer because of our sin are we under God's judgment and wrath. But if we've trusted in Jesus that He is the Son of God who died for us and rose again, that we are now adopted as sons. That the Christmas story is a story of God sending His Son to die for us so that we could be His sons and daughters. And then in doing that, He sent His Spirit to us. And so this is what God has done for us. Now, the response needs to be further than that because we need to ask the question, having received this from God, how should we live? And verse 8 continues that. It says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by their nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? I want you to think about this. He says, you you see what God's done for you. He's set you free through faith in Jesus and His sacrifice for you to make you His sons and daughters, to give you an inheritance that's richer, better, and deeper than you ever imagined. He said, but here's the problem is that before Christ had done that to you, you were enslaved. You worshipped things all the time that weren't God. You worshipped your career, your kids, your money, your prominence. You worshipped pleasure and comfort. All these things. He's before you knew Jesus. These were the things that meant the most to you. That if someone threatened to take from you, you'd lash out in anger and rage. He says, these things are not God's. And the problem is, is that we all forget what we have in Jesus. And we begin to fall back into pursuing those things. And he says, you can't do that. Don't live the way that you used to live. Don't be enslaved to those weak and worthless things. Make Christ first in your hearts. Worship Him alone and serve Him. See, the story of Christmas is the story of a God who looks upon our sin and at every moment presses closer to us to transform, redeem, and liberate us. To set us free from the slavery of sin and the bondage of all the junk that we used to think was important. That every time we doubled down on it, it just delivered another broken promise. And it says, just walk with Him and He's good. He's given you an inheritance that Peter says cannot fade or be taken away. And He sent His Spirit with you and He's made you His son, His daughter. He's adopted you. And Jesus came as God's only Son so that through His life, death, and resurrection, you and I could be welcomed into the family. Christmas is a family affair. 
And God has made us family. And he's with us. And that gives us reason for hope no matter what the circumstance. Because God being with us today, here and now, through the presence of his Holy Spirit, the Bible says is only a down payment on what is to come when Jesus returns and God again in his, in his fullness makes his dwelling place with men. We long for that day. Let's pray and thank God for his presence and worship Jesus who came to us as he deserves. Father God, we stand in amazement at your goodness and grace to us that you look down on us in our sin and foolishness and in our rebellion. And rather than moving in immediate swift judgment, you came towards us looking for us. That you sent your son to walk this life, to to be able to sympathize and understand us and to stand in our place to die for us. That we might become your sons, your daughters. Father, I pray that we would celebrate that inheritance this Christmas season. That we would long each day for, for more and more of your presence with us. And that you'd give us the eyes of hope to look beyond the horizon to see the day that's coming when you again in in your fullness will make your dwelling with men and women. And we will celebrate being your people and you being our God. Father, I thank you that you came for us. And that you're for us. Because if you were for us, who can be against us? We thank you for all of these things in Jesus name. Amen.